it is insane when sometimes you've got a well-run business that where they can't find investment, they're profitable, all this sort of jazz or breaking even. Whereas there's businesses that are losing hundreds of millions a year or billions a year and getting significant investment. Welcome to Construction Disrupted, the ultimate podcast for the construction industry, exploring the limitless possibilities at the dynamic intersection of construction and technology. Wow, that's a mouthful. Delve into the latest topics, news, events, expert insights, and marketing that are shaping the industry right now and in the future. We'll hopefully sprinkle a little bit of humor in there for you as well. I'm your guide, Peter Sumpton, and I run a construction technology marketing agency, Build Different. If you're ready to embrace disruption and unlock the potential of the construction industry, keep on listening and be part of the conversation that's reshaping the future of construction. If you're not, uh, I really wouldn't bother. It's it's probably not going to be that interesting for you. Whether you're a construction technology professional or just part of the construction industry in general. This podcast is your go-to resource for staying informed, inspired, and of course, connected. Speaking of connected, the best way you can help to support this podcast is by sharing it far and wide and leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Right then, let's go and build different and get disruptive. If you ask Google what the most important thing in any business is, you get a variety of answers from relationships to reputation to people to profit and even urgency. All are key aspects. That is undeniable. If one of these is weakened, it surely impacts the success of any business. But this isn't a definitive list by any stretch of the imagination. Each business is different. But one thing we can all agree on is that businesses will not survive without paying customers, not paying their customers, getting paying customers. Yeah. Okay, good. Be it for profit or not, the money needs to come from somewhere. And if we track back to another truism, it's that a healthy pipeline of potential clients is also a critical factor. If the well is dry, no one can drink. Does that make sense? It, it did in my head. If we flip reverse it and look at why most businesses fail, the picture is much clearer. According to the SBA Small Business Administrator, about 33% of small businesses fail in the first two years of trading. And around 50% go belly up after five years. Don't know why I was so happy when I said belly up. It's a terrible thing. The most common reasons for these failures are a lack of capital or funding, retaining an inadequate management team, think we've all been there, a faulty infrastructure or business model, and unsuccessful marketing initiatives. And it's this final one that draws my attention for obvious reasons. Whether brand building or sales activation, your marketing initiatives are what will set you apart from most organizations. And part of this equates to demand generation. But how do we do this? Where do we start? 
What's involved? And why are unicorns currently a thing? Our guest today is Bradley Faller, a demand generation expert and startup advisor with experience within B2B SaaS, healthcare, and digital sectors. If we dig into the details, this consists of understanding your audience, choosing the right comms channels, creating the right type of creative and copy, utilizing budgets effectively, integrating comms, usability, accessibility, as well as all of these things being underpinned by a cohesive strategy. Sounds a lot like marketing, doesn't it? <laughs> or to put it another way, and to coin a meme that Bradley recently used, when a startup founder finally finds a working distribution channel, they usually say, it was the most erotic moment of my life. Uh, Brad, welcome. And is there anything I've missed off that intro? Thank you. No, I think you've done a stellar job with that. I'll, I'll leave it on the meme highlighter. <laughs> Fantastic. Right. Let's let's get into this. Um, you, 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 you've written a few things, you've written a few pieces and some of those have got some really interesting statements in it. I, I think you do very well with your words. Um, and there's, there's one that I'm going to come on to in a minute. Um, but it, this might be a long-winded way of starting this question. But if I was looking for someone to fill a growth-specific role within a construction company, um, I'd certainly ask them, to coin one of your phrases, can you create a unicorn that farts rainbows and magically makes my company skyrocket to the moon? Okay. <laughs> that aside, research shows that a teeny tiny proportion of startups think 0.0, add a lot of noughts and then a six at the end, reach that unicorn status. Um, and I think there's around about 1,300 active in the world right now, right? With this in mind, why are so many founders and startups focused on the magic words unicorn growth? And would you say it's it's healthy to have those lofty ambitions right from the start? Yeah, so I'll start from the from the end there. I don't think it's healthy. Um, I think what founders and founding teams should be focusing on is building something that delivers value to people. And have ambition around it, of course, but focus on the value, focus on the utility, um, and just focus on improving every day and learning more about your audience, learning more about their pains, how you solve them, that type of stuff. I think focusing on it's the same thing as uh, you know, I, I don't focus on your salary, focus on the value you're generating, and the salary will follow. So I think that's that's very important. Um, I think a lot of founders also are stuck in the unicorn, I guess, hamster wheel um, of thinking because of the route that many of them decide to go down in terms of funding. Um, so they'll approach VCs and the VCs have a very specific remit in terms of return on their investments, right? So founders are often not required, but they are... They feel compelled to tell this incredible growth story. You know, this is where we're heading to. We're, we're all going to the moon and you better get on this uh, train, right? Or you're going to miss the opportunity. Um, so I think it's it's partly that they have to tell their own. They have to tell the story in order to get the funding to then try and mm. get to some sort of level of uh, sustainability. Um, 
and I think the that's partly you know VC funding is not always the right route to go for many businesses. Um, if you're not going to be able to deliver a hundred x you know return for argument's sake on a couple million investments, um, and also there's unreasonable pressures that come with that sort of funding. Um, so. And the reality is that most companies won't get to that unicorn status. Yeah. So really understanding the market, understanding the opportunity within the market and then being realistic and then getting your head down and doing the work around delivering value. Because if you miss that important component, even if the market opportunity is several unicorns, you're never going to get there. <laughs> Do you think the the whole culture and VC thing has changed in in recent years uh, I mean I, I have I've got I'm not a very much an outsider looking in you know I've got an experience in in, in those realms um, of funding and, and, and VCs and the likes but from from an outsider looking in it seems very much that the expectations of of what you're going to do with that investment have increased and it almost seems that the cards are now with the VCs, whereas previously they were with the companies. I mean, I might just be talking rubbish there, but it'd be interesting to get your thoughts. Yeah, um, it waxes and wanes. So, you know, we had very similar scenarios after the original dot-com bubble burst where the relationship between VCs and founders changed. Mm. 2007 so you know you've got these waxes and wanes with these recessionary periods where monetary conditions change um but also vcs are like uh, many other investors they are obsessed with fomo and trends right mm -hmm. so whilst okay. you know yesterday um the yesterday the the trends were around flexible working covid friendly type businesses you know, 10-minute delivery services, all that type of stuff, that obviously is out of favor now for various reasons, including our own changing behaviors. Um, and then it moved to things like veterinary services, for argument's sake, right, where suddenly there's more pets, fewer vets, and and veterinary is the hot trend. So whilst I think VCs more broadly have to look under the hood a little bit more and not just give you the cash, I have to actually see are their forecasts realistic? Is this a, a great founding team? So their due diligence is a little bit more, I guess, formal, let's say. However, mm. there's still, gosh, I'm thinking now about one other one. Do you remember Clubhouse? I got a few billion yeah. and where is it, right? Good example of um, companies hopping onto a, uh, a trend. So that still exists. If a VC thinks that there's an opportunity that everyone is hungry for, and they want to hop onto, they'll still do that, right? They'll still um, make those, I guess, decisions and make those leaps of faith. But generally speaking, broadly speaking, and especially for businesses that have shorter runways. Um, so, you know, I was VC funded and now I've blown the cash and I've got one year's runway left. Call it a million pounds in the bank. That's where, and even prior to this current period, VCs were in a stronger negotiating position because you're going cap in hand asking for more money without necessarily having the strong growth metrics and momentum behind you. Momentum is everything in startups. Um, so if you're going into a conversation with a huge amount of momentum, you're doubling your user base, right? You're 
growing exponentially, I suppose. Uh, then the looking under the hood requirements, the the those sort of things, again, become secondary because it's all about the momentum, right? I'm hopping onto mm. this rocket ship. Forget about the rest. So it waxes and wanes in summary, but also it really depends on the sector and the sort of trends that are happening at the moment. Okay, for sure. I, I, I read somewhere, I can't, I can't remember where it was, but I heard that what three words... Um, as as big as it is, and as many people use it as it is, a yet to turn a profit. I, I I'm sure I read that somewhere. Which you you hear those things, and and you just think, well, if an organisation like that is not turning a profit, you know, we must need something magical to literally a unicorn that what was the quote? A unicorn that farts um, <laughs> farts rainbows. We need one of those. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Well this is it, you know, and and again this is where there's these interesting things because um what three words Uber just turned a profit or, or broke even recently. That's mm. had hundreds of billions, right? Or or many, many billions. Um companies like Deliveroo companies like Twitter went public. So the investors got a bit of payback. Fantastic. Um, Peloton as well, public. Um, mm. But Twitter was losing millions upon millions, right, until fairly recently. So that that guarantee of making money um, is a little bit hazy, right? <laughs> it's a bit hazy. Um, but yeah, it is insane when sometimes you've got a well-run business that where they can't find investment, they're profitable, all this sort of jazz, um, or breaking even, whereas there's businesses that are losing hundreds of millions a year or billions a year and getting significant investment. And I think, again, the, the thing that they'll look at there, the thing that even interests me is what is the opportunity size here, right? How long are we going to lose money for until we turn a profit and win? Um, and, and that's a, that's a case for, to your point, very few businesses, right. Have that type of momentum. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to turn to, so that's more the, the financials and the investment side. I, I want to look at the, the, the people, um, yeah. because you know, the people make the business right. And 92% of job seekers or entrepreneurs say that a healthy culture is vital for success, but about 50, just under 50% of employees say uh, that they have a great deal of trust. I thought it would be lower than that. Uh, they have a great deal of trust in their employee, which shows a bit of an imbalance in, in what's going on. Um, and there's loads and loads of other facts and figures and stats that we could chat about culture and team and workplace and how that all fits in, particularly with what's happened in recent years. Um, but I, I, I'm keen to get into the importance of culture, and also getting the right team. Um, you know, we've spoken about the financials, but what about the people? Yeah, gosh, that's a giant question. I think <laughs> I think the firstly, you know, I'm very much a person that wants to solve hard problems, the smart people, mm. you know, and I think trying to solve a problem uh, in a startup context doesn't happen in a nine to five space. Sometimes, mm -hmm. right, um, you have to do some work on weekends, sometimes evenings, sometimes, gosh knows, right? Sometimes you'll get a text message from the founder with 
some random idea on a Sunday morning. Um, and I think the culture of a startup is one where you're, you're very much part of a team. You're very much all in it to build something and make something, of course, with the other potential benefits out the back of the, the value creation you're trying to put in place. Um, so I think the number one thing is, do you work with people you trust and people you like? Because I, I don't know if, um, you know, the Rugby World Cup's on at the moment. I tend to watch a little bit of rugby being a, a South African originally. And I feel like this is a good analogy, right? Which is you're all on this field and you have to have complete trust in someone. Yes, someone might miss, someone might fall over, someone might um, not have a great day. You know, their mental health might not be where it needs to be. But you know that everyone's got each other's back and we're all in this together mm. trying to achieve a common goal. Um, where culture, I think, breaks down is where that shared ambition, that shared goal isn't, sh isn't shared. <laughs> um, that common goal, I should say, isn't shared um, because yeah. that's where you'll be misaligned with other folks. Now, that's fine in some companies and some cultures. Um, but I think startups are unique. Um, and that's not to say that you'd want someone to work 12-hour days at all, not at all. Mm. But it's that shared camaraderie that you have to have with your peers um, and trust. And I think the companies mishire all the time and companies make mistakes as well in terms of letting yeah. good people go sometimes. This, I guess, happens and it's inevitable. Uh, but what I do think is important is that when you know rather hire someone that fits within your culture and has the ethos but is maybe not as good than hiring someone that's going to damage that working uh, way of working that culture that relationship um that you have between your team members basically don't hire assholes <laughs> yeah that's uh <laughs> that's a good thing to have on the wall isn't it really uh, to re to remind people if <laughs> if we get rid of you just have a look at that totally with you on on that on that trust thing and that that centralized uh focal point of of where we're trying to go for, for me trust it is it, massive you know and if you break trust it's i i've always said that when it comes to micromanagement and working with people if you don't trust them, why why would you keep them in employment if if there's no trust there? It's it's like being in a relationship where you don't trust them. It's just massively unhealthy. It's I, I couldn't agree more, you know, and that's I think part of my management style as well, which is I've hired you to do a job. Um I need to make sure that you're hundred percent clear on what is needed from mm -hmm. you, what you need to deliver in terms of output, in terms of input. Um and then my job as a manager is ultimately to get all the rubbish out the way so you can do your job. Yep. Um, and, and, and then, of course, if trust is broken down for whatever reason, you need to work through those problems. But start at a position of trust. Start at a position of ownership. So I'm very much empower as many people from the bottom up uh, mm. as possible start from that position and then um make adjustments as you go yeah uh, love him or hate him 
Gary Vaynerchuk, he, he, he said, or I keep saying, I haven't listened to him for, for ages. I think he's good for motivation, but he, he spouts a lot of rubbish. Um, sorry, Gary, I know you're a keen listener of this podcast. Um, and one thing he, he, he said was that uh, my employees, I work for my employees. My employees don't work for me. And what he kind of meant there, and, and I wholeheartedly agree, and what you've just said is you're the shit blocker. You are the person that blocks all the shit from internal and external so the people you've got on your team can do their job to the best of their ability. And I, I just love that way of thinking that, you know, I'm hiring you to do this role and you know what you need to do. And if you don't, it's my fault. And if you can't do it, it's also my fault for either hiring you or allowing things to get in your way. Um, and it's just a usually the most counterintuitive ways of looking at things are the right ways of looking at things. Yeah. One um, company that um, I worked at for, I don't know, a good few years, probably three and a half years or so. Um, when I first joined the company, the uh, it was an agency and you were set up in all squads. Um, which mm. was a graduate, a junior, a senior, a lead, and and that was the sort of makeup of, of each squad. And the culture in the business, which I still love and still believe in today, was that you can't get promoted unless the person below you is ready to get promoted, right? Mm. The junior can become a senior or a mid or whatever nice. it was unless the graduate was ready. So the culture within each squad and then the business as a whole was that your um main sort of goal is to develop and mentor those around you and if mm. you can prove that you're able to mentor someone below you of course you're being mentored as well right then that means that everyone in the business develops everyone gets better mm -hmm. but also you have a responsibility to your peers because your success or your i guess progression is reliant on you um, uh, 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 taking that responsibility to heart. Yeah, I, I love that way of thinking. Again, almost counterintuitive to, to the to the traditional structure, but it 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 works. So let's let's stay with that that trail of thought yeah. for, for a little while. We we spoke about um, investment and financials, so we've ticked that, and then we've spoken about people and culture, so we've ticked that. So the next stage is what the heck are we going to do, and how are we going to achieve these lofty ambitions? And with that comes growth and scale up um, now with that the organization is is definitely going to change because you're getting more people to do more stuff um, and the organization will grow which means it's a, a changing beast anyway can we actually plan and maintain the same type of culture and positive working environment or is it inevitable that cultures are going to change and shift during the times of, of growth and scaling? Yeah, so I think um, during times of rapid growth, where you are hiring tens of people a day, right? Uh, and they, you know, your company is, is growing tremendously at a headcount level every week. I think that's where you'll find that these businesses hire and tend to fire, right? Pretty, um, pretty um, consistently because you're hiring very rapidly. Um, and there's some people that don't meet the, I guess, benchmark. There's certain things I believe um, that you can put in place that maintains elements of the culture. Of course, as you grow as a business, the team members that you have involved are become more diverse, 
have different, you know, that you almost start forming yeah. all microcultures within the business. A couple of things that you can do, I think, to avoid that breakdown, um, which is, again, trying to define what culture is. It's a shared <laughs> sort of belief, a shared way of sort of acting, if you will, right? Um, uh, a shared appreciation of things. So whilst, you know, I think diversity is super important, um, I don't think culture is everyone thinking the same necessarily, right? Um, there's certain things you can put in place. So, for example, OKRs. Um, I'm a firm believer in OKRs. Some people love them, some people hate them. But one reason why I love OKRs is that it's a very bottom-up approach to mm -hmm. defining what you're going to do. And that maintains the empowerment of the lowest sort of individuals, I suppose, in the team, or let's say the most junior people, because you have a say, you have that contribution to this roadmap, this plan for the next three months or whatever. So OKRs really help with that. Um, I think also then um, having a interview process that includes more people within the business so that you don't have a single sort of perspective on and hire. Sure, there's functional sort of um, and technical requirements that need to be ticked. Um, but how about you bring in people that are not involved in your area, right? A lot of people at businesses mm -hmm. tend to do that. So you may be hiring an engineer or bring in someone from marketing, bring in someone from sales. How do these people click? But of course, how do they think of the opportunity? How do they think about how they go about doing their work? Um, Last but not least, I think it's um, informal time with each other and facilitating that. That doesn't mean going to the pub and getting shit-faced, even though that's fun and everyone loves it, I'm sure. Um, but I think it's having opportunities where people can be informal with each other. It's very hard rem working remotely, I found, because mm -hmm. it's a transactional relationship. You get on the whatever it is, Zoom, um, you have the, a conversation about something that you need to transact over and then you put the call down. There isn't uh, that water cooler moments. And I think companies can focus on creating more water cooler moments mm. to keep the camaraderie um, uh, healthy. Yeah, I, I like that hybrid model and, and I, I work from, from home a lot of the time. Uh, and one thing that I've come to realize is that although I much prefer working from home, mm -hmm. it's that variety uh, in in location that can also expand your thinking and your thoughts. And, and you know, that's heavily linked to what you were saying, water cooler moments, culture, um, diversity and, and mixing with different people and, 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 and things like that. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with everything that you've you, you've been saying there. It's uh, hugely important. And the one thing that the last organization I worked for, what we used to say is there's a lot of forced fun. Um, and it was always Christmas party or we're doing this gathering or there's a barbecue. And the email would go around and say, can you make sure all your uh, teammates and direct reports and all that uh, join in and, and, and turn up? And you're just like... This this isn't how this should go. You shouldn't yeah. be forcing people to to turn up to things because straight away that's set a precedent for one future events and two the fact that it ain't going to be fun if you're being forced to go. 
Um, That's what's yeah. right. And if, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think there's there's these, you can create those, the intention is right, right? But Absolutely, I guess yeah. I, I'm more in the sort of how do we just make it natural and bring in these micro moments. Um, yeah. It's like one little thing when I was at uh, another business, <laughs> another startup, you had a buddy, right? They had a buddy system, but the buddy couldn't be in your team or even your department. They had okay. to be in a completely different department. And you'd buddy up with them and you'd have to go for lunch with a completely different team. And well, I say have to, you weren't forced to, right? But the idea was that you were from the sort of offset, you were engaging with other teams. So you weren't in these clicks. Um, from the outset. And these sort of things I think are, can be made to be more natural, I suppose. You're right. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, for, for sure. Right. So we've covered a hell of a lot of ground so far. The one thing we haven't covered, I'm going to let you lead on this one because I could do a bit of a preamble to this and it'll probably be next week when I get around to asking you your thoughts and opinions, but <laughs> how can marketing help facilitate demand? All right. So um, I guess there's a couple of components to demand, right? There's demand generation and there's mm -hmm. demand capture, right? Um, and and there's a couple of components to, you know, uh, even the demand capture side of things, lead gen and so on. Um, there's a, uh, I think there's the point I made earlier when it comes to value creation, right? Which is depending on where a buyer is in their journey, you want to add different types of value to their buying experience, their buyer's journey. A good stat that I keep citing um, all the time is 70% of a buyer's decisions are made before they even speak to you. <laughs> right. So before you've even gotten, if you own a sales led business, before they've even spoken to your salesperson, 70% of their decisions are already made. Mm. So they've moved from, being completely unaware of their problems, to being aware of their problems, to being aware of solutions, to being aware of your solution. Um, and for those that aren't aware of their problems, problem unaware, your job there in terms of creating demand is to understand who your ideal customers are, of course, and then allow them to explore the different problems, the different frustrations they have in their day-to-day. Because -day. this person goes, well, I've been using spreadsheets now for 20 years. I don't have a problem. I just need to learn how to <laughs> use spreadsheets better. You know, it's the uh, Henry Ford quote, I guess, on the, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said, you know, a foster horse or something. Yeah. I'm yeah. paraphrasing. Um, so I think allowing people to explore ways in which they could make their day-to-day -day more efficient, better, more fun, I think is important. So at different stages, you're looking at demand with a slightly different lens. For those folks that are solutions aware, they understand that they have a problem. They understand that there are solutions in the market, but they aren't aware of your solution. It's about, okay, well, how do we then align ourselves to the competitors that they are aware of. So when they think of the solution, we're coupled in with that bucket. Yeah. Um, whereas folks that are, again, aware of your solution, they brand aware, let's call it. How do we create urgency in a demand context? Mm. 
and there's i think tactics around that too happy to explore each one if you if you want but i think what you firstly have to do is understand your audience that's the fundamentals do you have a nuanced understanding of your audience in terms of companies in terms of buying committees if there are and in terms of individuals end users do you understand what their day-to-day -day looks like and do you understand what their i guess frustrations are through the day every frustration so if you understand them at a fundamental level then what you can do is start mapping out okay well where are our biggest opportunities today where should we be looking at um harvesting that demand so capturing that demand that exists because that's where we're going to play first because that's our quick wins if you will low-hanging yeah. fruits can't think of another metaphor but you're, you're with <laughs> me. there's probably plenty of them <laughs> and then what we'll do is move up that demand funnel right which is just i guess a, um, as a, a marketing consultant you'll be well aware of funnels right um and saying okay well we've we've looked at that bottom of funnel stuff let's look at the mid funnel or like i like to think of it more the awareness stages mm -hmm. and then we work i guess up from there from the people that are closest to making a decision and ready to buy all the way through to people that don't even have a clue that they have a problem never mind the solutions in the market yeah i think it was uh byron sharp and and the work that he did for how brands grow, which is a fantastic book. Again, you read it and it's so counterintuitive to what you've been brought up to believe and know yeah. about marketing. But what they're saying is you need to, the, 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 the loyalty or your current customers, uh, it's such a small proportion of the overall market and expand that to the people that aren't in that market yet that aren't ready to buy a solution of which they'll be 70% when they are 70% their decision already be made, you know, think about all those buyers that you need to um, influence that don't need influencing yet. So when they are ready, that mental availability says, I've got this problem and that problem is linked to that, that brand, that company, that organization. And I suppose that's where the 70% comes in, right? That as soon as they've got that problem, that's their first thought. I was speaking to somebody a few hours ago and 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 saying, weirdly enough, they quoted Henry Ford as well, which is a bit strange. <laughs> um, but but I, I was explaining that mental availability, and it's the same. Like I don't eat a lot of chocolate, so I'm not in that that buyer's category, right? But if somebody says to me chocolate, I'm thinking Cadbury's straight away, you know. And for so, for another chocolate bar to get my mental availability even though I'm not ready to purchase yet, it's going to take a lot to shift that Cadbury's, Cadbury's thing that's in my brain that says chocolate equals Cadbury's. Yeah, and that and using that chocolate analogy, I would class you there as someone that solutions away. You know where chocolates are around and you have your sort of preference. Um, yeah. The challenge then for you in that sort of example isn't to um, convince you necessarily that Cadbury's is bad. And it's not come to convince you that uh, chocolate is for you. What it is is to understand, okay, what do you care about? You may be hyper fit, um, run lots of marathons, so you care about things like antioxidants. Well, then you're not selling the chocolate, right? You're selling the antioxidants 
and why your chocolate has more than. Yeah. So the, the the sort of process that you go through in terms of understanding your audience here is, again, a, a fundamental and making sure that this is a huge challenge, especially in earlier stage businesses where the need to show momentum and to show numbers, pipeline revenue is so entrenched that founding teams often discount the bigger opportunity, which is mm -hmm. the audience that are middle top of funnel, right? That are further away. Yeah. And that's where I believe you, you will ultimately win is if you can mm -hmm. win that sort of top of mind race before others. For sure. I completely agree. Um, Okay, final final part of it. You know, we've we, we've covered all these things from financials to people to growth. We're going great guns. We've spoke about marketing. There's one key factor that I think we all encompass, and I'm going to put it in a little bit of a riddle slash question for you to see if you can get this this answer right. Are you ready for this? By the way, I've, I hope so. Uh, okay, right. Ford, Rowling, Edison, Sanders. Seinfeld, Dyson. What have they all got in common? Um, they all make mistakes sometimes. Yes, they have failed. No. They are hugely oh. successful, but they have failed. You know, it took James Dyson, I'm reading this now, 5,127 prototypes to make the first bagless vacuum cleaner. If he'd stopped at the first, first time... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was five thousand one hundred and twenty-six away from from achieving that. Yeah, this is, so with that yeah. that in mind, it proves everyone fails, and you know we need to get used to failure because you're not going to go through life without failing. And I learned that this next quote from Sesame Street, avid fan: "Even your heroes were beginners." So, with all that in mind, how and why is failure key? Yeah, these are. This is. I'm a passionate fail a failure. <laughs> <I'm> a pa <laughs> no, um, I think failure. <laughs> let me let, no, let me let me change your description there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but no, no, keep that in. No, I think <laughs> failure is important, right? Because that's how we learn. That's how we learn as individuals, as businesses, um, as professionals, as babies. So I think. Fear of failure is what kills businesses, right? And and removing the ambition to make mistakes. Because if you're not making mistakes, you're not exploring enough territory, you're staying within your safe zone. And if you're staying in within your safe zone, you're likely doing what your competitors are doing. You're likely doing what those directly around you are doing. So how are you going to break free of them? How are you going to do something different. It's nigh on impossible, um, in my view. And what you're trying to do as, as a business that's growing a startup specifically is to try, learn as fast as possible and learn faster than those around you. You're only going to do that by learning what not to do as well as what to do. Um, and you do that through mistakes and failures. Um, and I think that is fundamental to culture as well, allowing people to have the guts, the chutzpah, the ambition to go great guns 
do it in a way that is logical and process driven. Um, but having a growth mindset means that you want to test and learn, iterate, mm -hmm. test, learn, iterate, test learning is don't do that again, iterate, right. And, um, you find that out of the successful businesses, the ones that learn the fastest and iterate the quickest tend to grow faster and deliver more value out the back of the whole process. Um, whereas those that don't tend to not. Um, and you can see this with older incumbents. You can see this with banks versus the neobanks. Um, you can even see it in the construction space as well. So I think fear of failure, if there's one thing I can be certain of that stops a business from progressing and growing at their potential or growing at all, is that there's a deep fear of failure entrenched in the culture. It's almost a rabbit in the headlights, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my short response to that. And it goes it goes back to what you were saying about about sport, and there's got to be that not fear of failure, but that that ability to fail. And and I've heard it on on um, a podcast about uh, I wish I could remember the podcast. It was it was a fair few years ago, but it was about Jurgen Klopp and how he builds his teams to have that expression in them that they're not afraid to fail. Now, don't get me wrong. It's within a structure. So you do your role, but within that role, you can try and beat that player. You can try that shot from 40 yards, you know, but if you do the wrong things in terms of our plan as a team, then that's an issue. But I want you to fail to get better at these things and and the way he he's built that type of culture of failure has you know has, has brought quite a lot of failures but a lot of success as well i mean uh, this is a tried a champions league uh, uh a prem title is nothing to be sometimes yeah and there's lots of sports analogies that i've seen yeah. clips of i'm an arsenal supporter i'll just uh, put it out there so that <laughs> disclosure exactly don't, don't hate me but this year is that uh, yeah. um <laughs> But it's always, it's always this year, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, I've seen clips of Pep Guardiola where he said, look, I give you permission to make mistakes. What I don't give you yeah. permission is not to want the ball. Take mm -hmm. the ball. That's what I expect of you. Make a mistake, okay. But if you don't want the ball, that's a that's a no-no, right? And I think mm -hmm. that's so applicable, which is give people the opportunity to make that dribble if we carry on with that analogy, but, you know, and that's what you want is for people to keep trying to at least score a goal. And um, the other is uh, Michael Jordan, of course, right? There's yeah. loads of quotes of his about, but it's that you always see him, you know, how many three points and all that sort of stuff that he got. But his quote is again, paraphrasing around, um, you never hear about the ones I miss, right? Yeah. You never heard about the ones I miss. You can take that analogy even further, right? You never hear about the lotto tickets at lose. You only hear about yeah, the yeah, one yeah. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, reporting that on the news that would be interesting. Can you imagine, right? It's like, and so I think you you hear about the winners very often, but you don't hear to your point about the work, the grind, mm. and the huge amount of failures, right? They had to go through to get to where they are. Another basketball one's Steph Curry, I suppose, who was in basketball terms. A shorty um but you know the perseverance drive um got him 
to where he is. So I think this is, again, sports people are very used to taking shots on goal and a whole bunch missing whatever that sort of metaphorical goal might be and missing yeah. and just keep going and going and going. Losing the Champions League final and having to wake up in the morning and then go to, you know, train again and try again. This is, I think, very inspirational for me, but this is a sort of culture that means that you have that drive to keep going because you just brush it aside. Um, last point oh, on failure. Sorry. Uh, oh, sorry, you go. It, 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 before you make that last point, because it'll be a nice way to, to end, I think. Now, I know you're an Arsenal fan. We need to end this quite quickly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, is, is that it all seems to be American, but uh, there was Wayne Gretzky in in ice hockey that said, um, you know, I'm I'm missing more than I'm I'm scoring, and, and that's a massive paraphrase though there. But mm -hmm. I miss more than more times than I score. And if you look at baseball as well, how many times does a batter, I, I think they're called, but a batter actually hit the ball and get onto first base, let alone hit a home run? It's very very rare. So so rare that. The stats, they end, they start in naught point something as a, as a start in terms of their batting average, you know. Yeah. So and and these are elite elite athletes that you know the best of the best. And if 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 their if their hit ratio is negative, I suppose, then you know yeah. we, we all need to take those failures and learn from them. Well, that's a drive, and then have the drive to get up and do it again. This is yeah. Yeah, my final points on failure was I've got two young daughters um, and there's two things that I talk to them about at the school gate when I wait with them in the morning. I'm morning dad. Uh, <laughs> so is one, try your best. Whatever you do, just make sure that you've tried your best. And when you get home, I want to learn about all the mistakes you made. So make lots cool. of mistakes, have fun and and learn from that because that's where we learn. So you know, I think this is one thing that we'll talk about over dinner, right? Isn't isn't how well you did in your tests. It's more what mistakes did you make? Because then we can think about and talk about the areas where you can learn and improve rather yeah. than just this generalized um, number or, or output. And I think, again, that's that's what I like from my teams, which is, okay, mm -hmm. we, we did what we needed to do. We hit our goal. We met, exceeded our objective. What do we learn from this process? What are we going to do differently next time? Because that's how we're going to get better. Yeah. Uh, great, great way to end it on, on, on that statement. Brad, I'm sure we could chat for another three or four hours, but we'll leave that for <laughs> a, another time and an, another podcast episode, I think. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. I've really enjoyed our chat. Really cool. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day and giving this a listen. If you want to chat further about anything you've heard on today's episode, have a topic or technology you'd like me to cover, or simply want to say, hiya, you'll find me on LinkedIn or through the emails, peter at builddifferent.marketing. Stay disruptive.